0: This is KVR, Kaiju Vision Radio, Episode 44, Gorath. Kaiju and Tokusatsu fans and welcome to Kaiju Vision Radio, a podcast about the appreciation of Kaiju and Tokusatsu movies and discovering their historical and cultural value. I'm Brian Sherfield. In this episode, I will be covering the 1962 film Gorath. The Japanese title is Yose Gorasu or the literal translation of that is Calamity Star Gorath. I've been looking forward to this episode because I knew I wanted to do an episode on it as soon as I saw it. It's just really unforgettable, and I know you're going to like this one. The related topics for this episode are near-Earth objects, planetary defense, and other scientific aspects related to Gorath. Stay tuned for the film description of this great disaster fiction movie. It's KaijuVision's original method to describe the film rather than just read a boring plot summary. You're listening to KVR Kaiju Vision Radio. Gorath is a dense and compact rogue star, three-quarters the size of Earth, but with a gravitational pull 6,000 times that of Earth. It is similar in appearance to a red dwarf, and it is gradually growing as it pulls more matter towards itself. In 1979, it's discovered that Gorath is on a collision course with Earth. Dr. Tazawa, a bright and serious astrophysicist, is one of the leaders in the scientific effort to understand and avoid Gorath. Tatsuma Kanai is a strong-willed and brave cadet astronaut who travels on Capsule 1 to make a close pass of Gorath to collect data, putting himself at great risk. He is interested in the caring yet conflicted Takiko Nomura, who works at the Space Ministry. She lost her boyfriend in the JX-1 Hayabusa spacecraft, which was destroyed by Gorath. Tomoko Sonoda is the daughter of Raizo Sonoda, the captain of the JX-1 Hayabusa. Dr. Sonoda is her grandfather, a smart and intellectual paleontologist assisting in the scientific project against Gorath. Dr. Kono is another responsible and intelligent astrophysicist heavily involved in the planning and execution of the scientific endeavor. The human plot and the Gorath disaster movie plot are unified, as nearly everyone's motivation is to help escape Gorath. Gorath is the problem. The team of humans tasked to get Earth far enough away from Gorath devises a two-year plan called the South Pole Operation. They develop atomic-powered rocket thrusters in its 372-mile diameter area in Antarctica to move Earth 400,000 kilometers out of its original orbit in a 100-day period. Each rocket thruster is buried 500 meters deep, and there are enough of them to produce 6.6 billion megatons of force. The problem is solved when the original plan actually works, despite the delay caused by a massive sinkhole destroying the factory and an attack on the control center by the walrus-type kaiju Maguma. Gorath hurtles past Earth, and while it causes catastrophic damage on Earth, humanity saves itself. The story by Jojiro Okami and the screenplay by Takeshi Kimura is simple and cohesive, with little subplot activity. It is based on the American film When Worlds Collide from 1951, directed by George Powell, which was based on the 1933 American book of the same name by Edwin Balmer and Philip Wiley. In Gorath, an intergalactic star is flying towards Earth. In the movie version of When Worlds Collide, it's an interstellar star and one of its orbiting planets, and in the book, it's two rogue planets. The film had a budget of 126 million yen, or about 2.1 million present-day dollars. The production value is above average, with Toho Studios running at peak efficiency in the early 1960s. Director Ishiro Honda created what would become one of his most favorite films, though he was not a fan of the inclusion of Magma by Tomiyuki Tanaka. Magma was supposed to be a lizard-like monster, but Honda had it changed to a walrus to avoid any resemblance to Godzilla. Special effects were directed by Eiji Tsuburaya, assistant directed by Teruyoshi Nakano, and newcomer Koichi Kawakita was an uncredited assistant optical technician. The special effects are solid, with convincing models, impressive composites, animation, and matte paintings. The music by Kan Ishii is intense, fitting the catastrophic story of the film. It is filmed in tohoscope and has stereophonic sound. The tone of the film is serious, and the events of the film are given plenty of gravity, as Earth is in danger. Though there is an effort to add some realism to the story, it's a fantasy film. The film is not particularly experimental because it was made 11 years after When Worlds Collide was made into a film in the United States. It's a Japanese take on the same type of story. The film reinforces the style of The Last War from 1961 with its focus on the coming disaster and what to do about it only instead of a nuclear war being the disaster, it's a threat from outer space, albeit not a threat from an alien invasion like films that had already been made. The movie's purpose was to be a captivating scenario of how Earth saves itself from a cataclysmic stellar event. The film was made for fans of science fiction movies, astronauts, special effects films, and kaiju. It was going for the same audience as When Worlds Collide when it was made. The film was released on March 21, 1962 in Japan. Though there is no number for how much money the film grossed, it was likely moderately successful. It was acquired by Branco Pictures in the United States through Allied Artist Pictures. The film was released in the U.S. on the West Coast only on May 15, 1964. In 1968, the same company re-released the film on a double bill with The Human Vapor, which was unsuccessful. The film is generally liked by tokusatsu and somewhat by kaiju fans, though it is a lesser-known film. It has a rating of 6.0 on that movie database, with a total of 491 votes at the time of the release of this episode. The original 88-minute film was cut down to 83 minutes for the English-language version. Some of the dialogue was cut, a significant amount of the film was re-edited, and Gorath was given its own sound effect. All but one shot of the Magma scene was cut, with the American producers referring to it as Wally the Walrus, The film was cut in a way to make magma look like it's just volcanic, earthquake, or explosive phenomenon, although the final shot does have a mortally wounded magma in it. There was a seven-minute-long astronomy lecture at the beginning of the film when it originally premiered. There is a low amount of conflict in this movie besides the obvious humanity versus certain doom. Both the original When Worlds Collide and its movie adaptation had vessels being built in various countries to escape Earth, and Earth is destroyed in the planetary disaster. They also both had plenty of worldwide panic and human conflict, mainly over who would get to escape and who wouldn't. Gorath has none of these plot elements. The Brotherhood of Man theme, common in Ishiro Honda features, is on full display. Saving Earth is priority one, all other priorities rescinded. Unlike the 1951 when worlds collide, the United Nations is successful in bringing the world together to back the South Pole operation. The story proves that when humanity works together, everyone wins. Humanity does not panic in the face of planetary annihilation. The humans have time, scientific knowledge, and international cooperation on their side, resulting in a happy ending for Earth. The unmistakable theme is that humanity can work together to solve challenges even as great as Gorath. That concludes part one. You're listening to KVR Kaiju Vision Radio. Part two of the podcast is the opinion and analysis section. I first ran into this film a few years ago, and I've loved it since the first time I saw it. I had seen When Worlds Collide, and I liked it, but it was really low on special effects, and it didn't have as much of a budget as it even should have had. I remember the visual of New York City being flooded, and and that was a still image, and that was pretty impressive. I did like the film, though, because it was different, and it was a good story. The lead character was a scientist, just like in this. I like this more, though, because it has more special effects, and because it's more imaginative. It's a disaster film, first and foremost. Disaster fiction. It's not a sci fi space adventure. It's not a kaiju movie. It's a disaster movie, just like The Last War was a disaster movie. I like how we immediately see the unsuspecting humans celebrating Christmas, completely unaware that a space tragedy has occurred. It's Christmas 1979 at this point. Millions of Japanese people have Kentucky Fried Chicken on Christmas, it's a tradition. It was the largest fast food business in America in 1963, just a year after this movie was made. The first KFC franchise opened in Japan in 1970, so there wouldn't be any KFC in this movie. Takeshi Okawara was the first owner of that franchise, and he overheard some non-Japanese talking about how they missed having turkey for Christmas. He then made a party barrel special of chicken to work as a substitute for that Christmas turkey dinner. The idea took off, and it was marketed as Kurisumasu Niwa Kentucky, or Kentucky for Christmas. It became a tradition in Japan, where there was previously no tradition for Christmas really at all. Brilliant marketing idea. But it can be rather elaborate, too, with not just chicken, but also cake and wine included in a large family meal packages. Some Japanese people treat the holiday like Valentine's Day, and they go to a fancy restaurant. Some Japanese simply just acknowledge Christmas, while the others don't acknowledge it much at all. But KFC on Christmas is really surprising to Americans who've never heard it, and it's such a unique example of how traditions get globalized and then turn into something unique that you would never think of doing at Christmas in America. The Prime Minister and his government in Japan immediately set aside Japanese concerns when they are told Gorath is on a collision course. They could have decided, like in When Worlds Collide, that they would create their own escape vehicle filled with people. Instead, they immediately defer to the UN and say, work out a plan to avoid this. I feel that for many people that normal human nature would go for the escape vehicle, though, which is why Dr. Kono at least mentions that other countries are building spaceships, but he doesn't mention escape vehicles specifically. If this actually happened, the mentality would be, let's save ourselves, let the other nations of the world figure out their own plans. But this movie is unabashedly itself, and that mentality doesn't go anywhere in Japan. In When Worlds Collide, multiple countries were building escape ships, and some were more successful than others. About the models in this movie, they look absolutely incredible. It's better than many other Toho movies before and after this. The facility, at 18 minutes and 40 seconds, is just astounding. The moving cars and the other little touches really make the whole thing look nice. The matte paintings behind look very realistic, too. Suspension of disbelief is mandatory, though. With with films like this and other tokusatsu films, it's part of the fun. The incident involving the JX-1 Hayabusa, the first experimental spaceship at the beginning of the movie, has a field as a Japanese version of the space shuttle Columbia. It's a space tragedy. This movie was created during the space race, of course, and if you want to look more at about the space race, then definitely check out the episode on battle in outer space, because that is the related topic. The crashing of the JX-1 Hayabusa into Gorath is a very Japanese space tragedy, too. The captain gets angry at his fellow astronauts when they start getting worried. The tear running down the captain's face is the indication that he's breaking up inside, though. They face their deaths in a very Japanese way. The pilots yell Banzai right before they crash, and they throw their hands up. That was cut for the American version of Gorath. Them putting their hands up reminds me of Idris Elba and company in Prometheus from the Alien franchise at the end of that movie. Towards the end of the JX-1 Hayabusa part at the start of the movie, Jun Tezaki is sitting there accepting his fate, and the camera's slowly zooming in on him. And then that chair cushion comes uh, and moves up from behind him, I think you can tell it's just someone behind him moving the cushion up there because it gets all wobbly as it's moving up. It's one of those things I didn't even notice until I saw it for the upteenth time for this episode. The composite images in the film are solid. A few are nearly impossible to tell that they're composites at all. In 1906, into the movie, there is a seamless composite with a matte painting behind it of the base. The press is initially not allowed into the base, but in fact they were invited by the scientists. This is an indication of how open the process is and how the scientists are in charge, but you can't tell where the line is in that composite. It looks absolutely top-notch. The pilots are rugged and independent flyboys of the old days of the astronauts. They have a happy attitude and they're passionate about their jobs. It's where a lot of the humor in this movie comes from, though. Like when one astronaut is singing during his scientific test at the beginning of the movie, or right at the beginning when Kanai is fooling around while he's in that beeping robot suit. They sort of screw around in a lighthearted way. I thought they got the personality type of astronauts absolutely right in this. The part with Akira Kubo's character and the other astronaut in zero-G and they're doing this sort of punching at each other, and and that gets the technician, who's played by uh, Kenji Sahara, upset at them. If it weren't for some of this fun behavior, the movie would have been much duller. At the beginning of the movie, Kumi Mizuno's character, Takiko Nomura, says how Kanai has the spirit of a Tokugawa-era warrior, strong at heart, and that helps him win. That's a summation of the spirit of the astronauts, astronauts in general, and of this movie. There couldn't be a bigger difference between the original When Worlds Collide and this movie with regards to tone. The movie is full of racial optimism and unity. The United Nations is a successful organization, while the U.N. fails in When Worlds Collide. Japan demonstrates its scientific and technological supremacy in this movie, just like in Destroy All Monsters and many other movies. The world couldn't have been saved if it weren't for Japan. Dr. Kono literally says that Japan's technology is putting other countries to shame. The fact that there's no one panicking in this movie is so different. Ishiro Honda said that it wouldn't seem real if there was panic in the movie. I'm not sure how that is. He has to be coming from such a Japanese direction on this, and, and it's so, like, his personality is so imprinted on this movie that I can only think that him and cultural differences are to account for this difference. Both the original book and the American film adaptation have plenty of panic and desperation to escape certain doom. To me, it's an entirely human instinct, and is to be expected, just like getting wet when you go outside in the rain. The most riotous thing that happens in this movie is Takiko's teenage brother asks for a drink, and he's refused. There isn't even a little panic for the even-minded people to triumphantly defeat. It's one of those things that many Americans would just be puzzled by, and it would make them think the movie is totally unrealistic. We have to have enough special effects scenes laid out in the plan for this movie after all, though. I'd rather have more special effects than more realism and less special effects. Honda said that this was his favorite film with regards to international cooperation and human equality, and that seems quite obvious once you read about that. It's permeated with positive feelings and hope. Originally, the Japanese elites were going to escape Earth before it's destroyed, similar to what happens in When Worlds Collide, but Honda and Toho went completely the other direction. You can tell that this movie is an Ishiro Honda movie a mile away. There's something to be said about how the 1951 film is more realistic plot-wise. For instance, in that movie, the rich and the powerful are the ones who want to be on the arcs, quote-unquote, that are built to escape Earth. Their meddling is something that would happen in real life, I think. If this kind of scenario happened today, then the billionaire class would actually end up calling all the shots, since the United Nations probably would not be as successful as it is in this movie. Of all the people working on the project in the 1951 film, only a small number of them actually get to go, and it's determined by lottery. But the people who end up on the unlucky end of that lottery then decide to take things into their own hands and attack. To me, it's human nature and it's realistic, but this is totally turned around the opposite direction for this film. I'm surprised that Gorath wasn't made into a planet, or alternatively surprised that it didn't have a planet orbiting it. I say that because they could have worked in how there were cities on the planet in the book and in the American movie version of When Worlds Collide. In the book, the escaping humans land on the planet, and at the end of the movie, they notice a road. Before that, they could see cities on the planet with telescopes. It would seem a very Toho thing to work aliens into this story somehow, but they decided not to. George Furness as Hooverman, his great voice could not have been better in the UN and Control Center scenes. He sets the tone at the UN, along with Dr. Tozawa, about how saving the Earth is now the highest priority and to set everything else aside. He talks about setting aside egotism. The little touches of the English language in this movie are really fun. I'd call it casual English, the casual talk at the Control Center, the we did it at the end of the movie. Japan and America are the dominant countries at this U.N. meeting. The other countries, like the fictional U.S.S.O. and Ukrainian, are simply stand-ins for generic countries. They give a little opposition, such as apprehension about the science and the feasibility of the plan, and then their concerns are set aside. The creation of fake countries has been done before this, just one year before this, with maybe the most famous fake country of all the movies covered so far on this podcast, Rulisica. I think this was done just to avoid putting any countries on the spot, so to speak. I don't think it would have been a better scene to have all the countries being real, because it actually would take me out of the movie rather than help it be more realistic. Long-term effects of something like this would include global warming, and especially warming of the Antarctic. There's also the obvious issue of having to get Earth moved 400,000 kilometers back to its original position, But like the rest of the ending, that we-can-do-it spirit is everywhere, and if we can move Earth to one position, then we can move it back. The thing with tokusatsu is that some Americans are surprised by the lack of realism in these movies. Americans expect more sci-fi, but this isn't really sci-fi. It's fantasy. It's disaster fiction. It's more important that the film be imaginative than be realistic. That's why we have the fantastical idea of the thruster jets being built in Antarctica. Ishiro Honda wanted to add more plausibility to it, which is one reason why Honda and Kimura met with an actual astrophysicist at Tokyo University to talk through the movie's events in order to make them more plausible. They also had a professor write out equations on the board that's behind Dr. Tozawa at the UN. This isn't any more unrealistic than any Godzilla movie, though. Godzilla is a fantasy creation, and there's no scientific explanation behind that Godzilla that's realistic that explains his existence or the existence of any other kaiju. What I love about this movie is how imaginative it is. The Japanese are more geared towards something being imaginative than something more realistic. And in America, that's really not the case. Honda was also concerned that it wouldn't be plausible that Gorath would pull the moon away and destroy it, while not destroying Earth, simply because the two celestial bodies are so close to each other. I could also point out how Jupiter acts as a cosmic vacuum cleaner for the solar system, and it probably could have stopped Gorath from coming closer. Tanaka wasn't really concerned about this. Tanaka was not interested in making things realistic, and he said, "...the truth doesn't make a good movie." I get what he's saying, because you wouldn't have had so many good special effects in the story if the story had been more realistic, and then we wouldn't be able to see them. But to me, what's more implausible? A walrus kaiju released from the ice in Antarctica, an area in Antarctica bigger than New Mexico covered with atomic-powered thruster jets, or the nations of the world setting aside their differences and working together in a crisis? I don't know. The song that the astronauts sing in the Japanese version when they're in the helicopter in Tokyo going to the space ministry is called Orera Uchu no Paroto, or Pilot of the Universe. It's a song about the bravery of the astronauts and how cool of a job it is, that sort of thing. They're carrying the hopes of tomorrow, and they're conquering the cosmos. And this was cut from the American version. When the astronauts go to the director of the space program to ask to go on the Gorath mission, the issue of money is discussed. Since Gorath was discovered, the director says that the money is there for the JX-2 project because of the importance of the mission. It reminds me of the movie Contact when S.R. Haddon, the billionaire, says, First rule of government spending. Why build one when you can build two at twice the price? And to top it off, the second device in that movie was built in Japan, in secret. There's one part of this movie that makes me think of The Last War, the movie that was covered in the previous episode of this show. It's the part where Dr. Kono and Dr. Tezawa are in the car and they talk with the driver. There's a disconnect between what the driver thinks is going to happen and what the scientists know is going to happen. The driver says that Gorath won't be near Earth in a long time and that it'll get figured out before anyone needs to worry. It's the media's business to make noise about it, so that's normal. But this scene reminds me of the way Frankie Sakai's character is disconnected from the idea of a nuclear war actually happening. During this ride in the car, we are shown some footage of bustling Tokyo at night. Before this, in the helicopter scene with the singing, we are shown some impressive views of pre-disaster Tokyo. This pre-disaster footage is already pretty common, and we haven't even gotten to the submersion of Japan yet. The meeting regarding GORAS effects on Earth has these paintings, they were doing the slideshow, and it's these paintings of uh, volcanoes, water being sucked out of the oceans, and uh, the atmosphere being sucked away from the planet. They're nice slides, and it helps give everyone the sense of urgency of how disastrous all this could be. There is a longer slideshow scene in the submersion of Japan uh, that functions the same way. There's also another slideshow in Prophecies of Nostradamus uh, that works the same way as well. The government is convinced that this must be avoided and that they need to take action. That's totally unrealistic to me because national governments would often not defer to scientists and whatever scientists say. I doubt that would happen these days. The scene with Kumi Mizuno and Akira Kubo's characters, Takiko and Kanai, is mainly concerned about how relationships change with the Gorath events all going on in the background. The events of this movie go from 1979 to 1982. There's a sense of urgency that wouldn't be there otherwise, though, because of this disaster that's coming. When it seems that there could be no Earth in a relatively short time, relationship talk gets quicker and more to the point. He's really interested in her and he's being really forward and she tells him derisively that it's like back when he was in high school because these two did go to high school together. Then she is hesitant and conflicted about her relationship with her recently deceased boyfriend of hers, Manabe. She rejects the valuable gift that he gives her and this upsets him. And then he throws the picture of Manabe out the window and tells her she's the one that needs to grow up. What he means is is that there isn't much time left and he might not return anyway from his mission, since he has to go to observe Gorath tomorrow. Even though he doesn't say it, there's an attitude of, if the world could be gone, we should at least try to make our final moments on Earth happy. So her dwelling on the past, even the recent past, becomes pointless. Akahiko Hirata gets the juicy Ishiro Honda money talk about how the UN has brought all races on Earth together, and that trust, honor, and cooperation brought us all together. Well, a lot certainly happened between 1962 and 1979 in this movie. But the UN was still looked at by many as a good organization back then, and they thought that there was actual potential for the UN to help. It does help, but it definitely hasn't made racial or national differences disappear. Like I said, the optimism in this movie is all pervasive and contagious, and it actually gives me some hope, too. In the scene, we pretty much see all races working together at the new headquarters that's being set up in Antarctica. We have different races and we have Americans speaking English back and forth. Dr. Tozawa is speaking some English along with them. Such a collaborative effort. We see what the nuclear thrusters look like when they show us a painting of it. The whole idea is so grand that I don't know if any American movie would have the guts to do it. It's maybe the most fascinating thing in this whole movie. I think it's in the same line of thinking as the famous Dimension Tide from Godzilla vs. Megaguirus. In that episode, I gushed about how I loved the Dimension Tide. It's Toho Science at its very best. It's unrealistic, you say? Well, for a second I thought Mega Garrison and Godzilla weren't unrealistic. At 43 minutes in, there's that wonderful sequence showing the building of the facility for the South Pole operation. It has the moving ships, the helicopters, the conveyor belts, the cranes, bulldozers, all this stuff moving around. The buildings that are under construction have sparks flying off of them as the workers use tools. That's a really great touch. This is some of the best special effects of any Toho tokusatsu movie. The way the camera movement works gives even more size to the operation. Then they work in real people with all of the other things in the background. The music during this adds more drama to the operation. It's also hard to not notice that the U.S. and Japan are doing a lot of this work, just like they pay for a lot of the United Nations to function. It's a long special effects scene. Then we get our cave-in scene. And I love the atomic-powered rock-destroying machine. It's called the Atomic Burrower. This is one of those few events that actually throw the humans off schedule some. But it's not rioting humans, and it's not humans working against things. No, no humans at all are saying that it's a lost cause and to quit working. Everyone keeps trying. Another thing that throws off the humans is the fact that Gorath is growing. Again, that's an external pressure, not an internal one from other humans. The struggle in this movie overall is to include enough human drama. Speaking of human drama, Akira Kubo's character has a psychological crisis when he comes so close to Gorath. His memory loss is a trope. It reminds me of what happens in Rodan. Same deal there. However, I'm not sure if the audience really takes much notice at this little subplot of his amnesia. It's not really the human drama that people are watching this for in the first place. It just doesn't make that deep of an impact on me. Akihiko Hirata is a great captain on this, and he looks decisive and is clearly in command of his men. The fact that there are so many familiar actors in these movies, as there are in many of the best Godzilla movies, is definitely a positive factor. The contract system really worked for Japan for acting up until 1970. The startup of the thrusters is nice because it shows how much drama is being built up in it, and they have the close-up of the button being pushed. Then we see all the flames blowing out of the reactors, and the effects look all cool. The hopefulness breaks out again as everyone pats each other on the back, there's a ticker tape drop on everyone, and victory is declared. Tomoko calls Tazawa on the futuristic video phone from Tokyo, and everyone else in the control center sees he's talking to her, and they cheer for that. Another moment of levity to humanize things a bit more. Directly after this, the scene with Dr. Tazawa, played by Ryo Ikebe, Dr. Kono, and Dr. Sonoda, played by Takashi Shimura, is one of the most powerful human moments in the movie. Kono is upset because Tezawa said the calculations changed because Gorath is gradually growing bigger and stronger. Kono is adamant that there won't be any more thrusters built, and Tazawa pleads with him to listen. Kono insists that Tezawa’s math is wrong and that the UN isn't going to listen to his opinion. But that formula does change significantly if Gorath's size is a variable instead of a constant. Tezawa gets passionate and says the existence of the human race is at stake and that Kono is putting everyone's lives at risk. Tomoko even reprimands him and says you shouldn't talk like that. Immediately after Tezawa leaves, Kono admits that Tizawa was in fact correct. Dr. Sonoda asks Kono, why aren't you telling the UN about this? And Kono shockingly says that the UN knows that there's nothing that can save us short of divine intervention. Dr. Sonoda then says, well, you have to do your best. You have to try. There's also an age distinction drawn here, when Dr. Kono says Dr. Tozawa is just young and doesn't understand how to look at all of this. Then we get to the big dramatic scene with the one who I like the most in this movie as far as acting, and that is Ryo Ikebe. Yumi Shirakawa, as Tomoko Sonoda, is at her best in this scene as well. The music is perfect for this, too, and the scene would not have the effect that it does on me without it. He rhetorically asks, "'Am I the only one who cares?' and this can't be the reason for the destruction of Earth. She is the one consoling him and saying that he is the reason why people have any hope at all in the first place, and that he has given everyone in the world a reason to be hopeful, which is a huge compliment if there ever was one. It's a very moving scene. The part where the space stations have their own thrusters on them and, and like we pull the satellites and the space stations back towards Earth as Earth is moving, that's an interesting thing to uh, to cover because... I wouldn't have really thought of that, and instead they go to the trouble. It's not really something I'm sure if I would have even noticed, but I guess you can just chalk that up as another thing where they try to make things more plausible. Then we have our magma part of the movie. The suit looks rather weak, I must say, but that is Nakajima, Haru Nakajima, inside the suit. The kaiju was added at the request of Tomiyuki Tanaka, the producer, against the director Ishiro Honda's wishes. Honda was not a fan of it. He said he should have pushed harder to exclude it from the movie. Well, it is what it is. Uh, Tanaka wanted the brief kaiju appearance to make the movie more marketable and noticeable to the kaiju fans, and that's exactly what it did. It didn't need it, though, because after realizing that there isn't so much of a difference between tokusatsu and kaiju movie fans in Japan, that I shouldn't differentiate between the two as much myself. But in America, the fandoms are more mutually exclusive, and for some, if there isn't a kaiju in it, then it's not as interesting or worthwhile to check out. To me, it's just not necessary to have Magma in it. Honda thought it brought the movie down. The people I showed Gorath to weren't impressed by that whole part of the movie. The Americans actually tried to cut the whole thing, and like I said in Part 1, the Americans referred to it derisively as Wally the Walrus. The American producers tried inserting Rodin's roar into the walrus's roar to make it more menacing, but the test audiences still didn't go for it. So they decided to cut the whole thing, and they, uh, they have one shot left where you can see the now dead Magma, and that's the only part in the American version that you see, and they put a whole bunch of fog and stuff over it to try to blur it out. Toho thought about having magma reappear in 1968 to destroy all monsters, but that ended up not uh, panning out. Dr. Sonoda finally gets to use his paleontology education in this movie by concluding that the massive amount of heat being generated in Antarctica has caused magma to be freed from the ice. The aircraft that the scientists fly in, which is the VTOL aircraft, it is particularly special and futuristic looking. It's really nice. The laser on it is a very nice effect. Despite Dr. Sonoda saying that magma should not be killed, unfortunately, it ends up having to be killed anyway. There are some composite images used for when our scientists check out to see if magma is dead or not, and they look pretty good. In the American version, you hear this roar as the aircraft is taking off again, and then they fire at it. And it's all the scene is all messed up. I don't really know what they're firing at. I don't, you usually don't fire lasers at, at earthquakes or volcanoes or landslides, but you know, covered in nebulous fog. I mean, it's, it's a very messy scene in the American version. The part with Saturn's rings being st- stolen by Gorath, that is a, an animation, and it looks pretty good. I was uh, rather impressed by that. An hour and 14 minutes and 30 seconds into the movie, Tomoko and Takiko are getting ready to escape Tokyo, and in the window behind them is what looks to be an incredibly elaborate model with a matte painting background of the city. And it's great, I didn't even notice that until recently. I imagine it was used for other movies. Starting at 1 hour, 17 minutes and 12 seconds in, the special effects really start in. The water in this is the most dramatic thing that we see. The special effects people flood a lot of models in this series of scenes. The last few minutes before Gorath passes at its closest point to Earth, the music goes into high gear, and when the danger has passed, we get the really cool part with Tozawa and one of our English-speaking actors, we did it, we did it. And that's a great way to top off that moment. And if there was much celebrating... It's the total opposite sentiment compared to When Worlds Collide. The discussion between the same English speaker and Tazawa, like the rest of the film, has the English speaking English and has the Japanese speaking Japanese in a normal conversational way. That's how it should be done in these movies. I guess some people want more realism or whatever to make this different somehow, but I like this. It's like in Final Wars. Just listen to yourself when you say, well, that's not very realistic. They wouldn't be able to understand each other. Well, and here I thought I was watching a movie. I watched the American version for this movie in preparation for this episode, and it's a mess. It's not horrible, but it's pretty bad. The Akira Kubo and Kumimizuno scene uh, with the picture being thrown out of the window, that scene's a really horrible disaster. She gets the gift from him, and she says in this high voice, What is this? Some kind of a joke? I'm not exactly sure what voice they were going for. Maybe somebody was trying to do Marilyn Monroe. I'm not sure, but it's a disaster. The English language version also begins with Paul Frees, a very famous voiceover actor, and he's doing his Orson Welles voice as the narrator. That's not Orson Welles. It's actually Paul Frees. There's inserted footage from other places in this movie as well, in the English language version. And the script was rewritten and not very well either. It's pretty cheesy. Uh, more music was inserted, although they kept some of the original music. The film overall is very altered. It's also quite bad. George Furness... The English-speaking actor, they actually dubbed him, and the voice for him is incredibly hilarious. It's the same kind of feel as King Kong vs. Godzilla, the American version of that. The educational interludes and introduction it reminded me of King Kong vs. Godzilla. The dubbing is bad. It, the film also looks bad. It's in pan and scan, and the, the quality is significantly degraded. It has the feel of a cheap B movie from America, is what I'm saying. It's boring and it looks cheap. I never like the English language versions of any of these. If you've been listening to Kaiju Vision Radio before, then you know what I'm talking about. There's another part in the English language version where uh, it's the part where Dr. Kono and Dr. Tazawa they are uh, in this argument, and then the writing is pretty radically different. Dr. Kono says something about how the project has drained all of our resources, and that's why we're not building more thrusters. And he says the world is tired and the world is bankrupt. And that's a completely different sentiment than what's in the original scene. But watching this was a chore. You couldn't pay me to watch the English-language version of this again. When the two ladies are getting ready to leave Tokyo and they're packing, and there's that big impressive model behind them, uh, the radio is on. And at one point on the radio... The announcer says by order of the commandant of the emergency militia looters will be shot on sight. Ugh. At one point also rocket ship 2 in this movie it has the sound that the vehicles in the War of the Worlds make the alien ships in that so either they lifted that from that or from somewhere else. Overall, though, uh, it's not even worth watching from an entertainment aspect either, because the the cheesiness really isn't funny. It's more just of a cringe kind of reaction that people have, I think. The ratings for a lot of the movies that are covered on Kaiju Vision Radio are sort of low when you look at that movie database. I would say that The 6.0 for this is a bit low. I would say at least a half a point or a point higher and put it up to a 6.5 or a 7. It's very interesting to watch. I really loved it. It's one of the reasons why I wanted to do Toho Tokusatsu movies this season in the first place. It's incredible. There just isn't a movie like it. It's so remarkable. It's unrealistic, but it is so incredibly itself. As far as classic Toho Tokusatsu goes, this is one of those ones that I would really put up towards the absolute top of the list. The acting, the effects, just everything about classic Toho Toho Tokusatsu is in this. It's not as action-oriented as Battle from Outer Space, and it's different from a lot of the other movies, although this is sort of in the same vein as The Last War, though it's quite more fantastical. The key point about this movie, though, is how imaginative it is, and I absolutely love the plan that they put together for how to save Earth and for the fact that they save Earth at all. It's very, very different, and it's something that I don't know if I would have ever written something like this myself or thought of a, as a fantastical idea of putting all of these nuclear-powered thrusters on earth and making it move and having all these visuals of the earth moving with this huge white jet coming out of the bottom of it. It's just fascinating. And when I show this movie to people, I love their reactions because they just, they're, they're so surprised. They're like, why isn't this realistic? It's because it's, so fun. It's itself, it's imaginative, and you have to commend a movie like this for for going out on a limb like this and doing this, because in America, you would not have been able to make something like this at all. Just as When Worlds Collide is a uniquely American story, Gorath is such a uniquely Japanese story, and I love just about every moment of it. That concludes Part 2, and I will move on to our related topics. You're listening to KVR, Kaiju Vision Radio. In part three of the podcast, I analyzed topics that were either brought up in the film or were going on at the time of the film's release. And for this topic, I chose near-Earth objects, planetary defense, and other scientific aspects related to Gorath. I chose this topic because I wanted to check out more about the science surrounding this movie, not necessarily applying science to this movie, but just more about these issues in general. Most of the objects that come into Earth's atmosphere burn up in it, but there have been tens of catastrophic impacts since the Earth began. There are hundreds of thousands of near-Earth objects that have been noticed and tracked. Near-Earth objects' orbits are changed to where they get into our orbit. Most of them are from the asteroid belt. Asteroids and comets. Well, comets are from outside of the solar system, and asteroids are from inside the solar system. The asteroids are dim and very hard to see on a telescope, usually. There are telescopes that can look at them, though, and track what direction they're going. And then you can determine if, it, if it's coming towards us or not. Not all of these near-Earth objects are hazardous, but some are potentially hazardous. There are a few hundred that could cause a catastrophe. It's one between big and small that could cause a regional catastrophe. If it's too big, it could destroy all of humanity. Ten meters in diameter is all that we really need to cause a regional catastrophe. There was one that hit Siberia, and at least it didn't hit London. It destroyed 830 square miles. Nothing like Gorath or anything else has been discovered that is imminently going to hit Earth. There are different ideas that people have thought of in order to deflect an asteroid or destroy it. There is, of course, one thing that was mentioned in this movie, which is use a nuclear explosive and then crash it into the object. And you can either use a vehicle to do that, or you can use a rocket. And there is also the idea of putting a thruster on that object. Now, that's way different than this movie, because in this, we put a thruster on Earth. Use it that way, and then that would drive the asteroid away. Now, if this movie went that direction and tried to be more realistic or whatever, you wouldn't get very many special effects scenes, though. There's also the idea of solar sublimation, and that is when you get a huge mirror or lens and you use sunlight to create gas that is on the side of that object, and then the photons from the sun create momentum, and so this is the same sort of principle as when you get a magnifying glass uh, above an ant and you're able to burn the ant doing that. There are also gravity tractor spacecrafts where you drag the meteor out of orbit using magnetic force. Regarding nukes, using nukes is pretty controversial, and is that all what it could take in order to actually move one? It would take a lot of force, especially if the asteroid is big enough. There would be a lot of incentive to use a nuke, and it would be considered necessary. The asteroid that hit the Yucatan Peninsula was traveling at 45,000 miles per hour. It was six miles wide, weighed a trillion tons, and a thousand mile radius around it was vaporized or incinerated as soon as it hit Earth. And then when that asteroid broke up into all these pieces, then they went back up into the air and then fell back down again. Debris was kicked up so high that it actually escaped Earth's atmosphere completely. The strength that this impact was, was 6 million times that of Mount St. Helens. It created a massive tidal wave and debris, fire, and earthquakes. It pretty much set the Earth on fire. It made a 12-mile deep impact. The impact crater for this asteroid was not discovered until the late 1970s. We've been hearing a lot about near-Earth objects in the past 35 years or so because we are becoming more aware as a planet over these decades about how much of a risk there really is for one of these uh, asteroids, comets, etc. to hit us. If it's a big enough asteroid, it could kill off all of humanity. But now we have a pretty good idea of what is going to hit us and potentially when and when all of these near-Earth objects could come close to us. It's possible that asteroids and or comets could have brought life to Earth. It's also possible that an asteroid or comet crashed into Mars and part of that crashed into us or possibly the other way around. There is an asteroid called Bennu-1 and that is an actually high chance of impacting Earth between 2175 and 2199. It's about a 1 in 2,700 chance, and that's actually pretty high. It is smaller than the asteroid that hit the Yucatan Peninsula. We sent a probe to image it and take a sample for it. It is 492 meters in diameter, which could cause a potential regional catastrophe uh, if it ever actually hit Earth. It could destroy a large city. It could cause a huge wave if it crashed into the ocean. It's also made of carbon material, which is not usual, which means that it could be carrying organics, life. If we find life on the asteroid, wouldn't that be interesting? It could, would it be similar to life on Earth, would it not? And it could possibly prove even where humanity came from, if it was like on Earth. Gravity is thousands of times smaller on one of these asteroids than on Earth, so it's the opposite of Gorath, really. It's very difficult for a human to walk on one, like has occurred in a number of films. Asteroids are sometimes also spinning at such a high rate that the centrifugal force of the asteroid could be where a lot of the damage comes from when it makes an impact. But there are only so many places that asteroids can go. They can also be traveling at extremely high speeds, too. The asteroid that hit the Yucatan contained iridium, And that comes from outer space, and that is the reason why we could tell that what hit there was from outer space and that it, in fact, did kill the dinosaurs. That asteroid was 125 miles in diameter. The asteroid was instantly vaporized when it hit Earth, and then all of that iridium went into the air. Because of that, impact was so strong and so huge that it created an immensely massive amount of heat. When that impact occurred, it was a superheated fireball, a shockwave, and a tidal wave hundreds of feet high in the Gulf of Mexico. 300 feet high wave, traveling hundreds of miles per hour. Debris went everywhere, and it distributed so high that it would cause fire to rain down on the Earth's surface. 70% of the planet died. This was followed by global cooling that blocked the sun, because of all of the debris. And night lasted for two to six months after the impact. It poisoned all of the air. It pretty much hit the worst place in the world that it could have. All of the SO2 then caused acid rain. There was a 5% drop in temperature all over the world for a few years. CO2 from the impact then caused a huge amount of global warming for centuries. Dinosaurs had essentially no chance. Now, a comet, if it would hit Earth, that would be traveling faster than an asteroid. In 1908, that was when the Tunguska explosion occurred, and there was no crater, but it was an 830-mile square fireball that occurred when that impact did occur. By 2020 or so, we should have all the objects figured out regarding the ones near Earth's orbit. So, from the late 1960s to about 2020 is the time it took to notice the threat and to state what the threat is. After 2020, it's about what to do if there is going to be an impact. There are 20,000 objects in near Earth orbit. Regarding Jupiter, it has such a strong and big magnetic field that that it can eject some of these objects from the solar system. If Jupiter was not around, The inner planets of Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars would be under much more of a threat. There would be many more bombardments of Earth as a result, and as a result, more mass extinctions. Jupiter is sometimes referred to as a cosmic vacuum cleaner, or the liver of the solar system. Jupiter also has 7,000 asteroids that rotate in its orbit and around it, and these are called Trojans. The comet Shoemaker-Levy 9 is the most famous comet, and it was captured from the Sun's orbit, and then it crashed into Jupiter. That was how it actually crashed in there. In 2012, there was an asteroid called 2012 BX34, and it came to within 65,390 kilometers, or 40,630 miles. Well, in the movie, it was 400,000 kilometers that Earth had to get away from Gorath. This asteroid was uh, much closer than that. It was 26 feet across, so it wasn't going to be a huge amount of a threat. If it went into the atmosphere, it probably would have burned up. It has been found that there are billions of rogue planets out there, in our galaxy and in others. They are ejected from solar systems at various points in formation, usually when the planetary system is forming. The smaller bodies are sometimes thrown out of solar orbit, and then, interestingly, when they are ejected from a solar system, they retain the moons that they have. There are also intergalactic stars, which are stars that do not have a home. They're not connected to a galaxy anymore. This most often happens when two galaxies collide with each other, and that's what Gorath is. It's an intergalactic star. There have been hundreds of intergalactic stars that have been discovered at the Milky Way's edge, and there are trillions of intergalactic stars in the universe. The Milky Way is not going to collide with any other galaxies, and I feel like rogue planets are more likely to threaten us than intergalactic stars are. Asteroids are more likely than that, as well as comets. Going back to how life originated on Earth, it is possible that organic matter from the asteroid could have found fertile ground on Earth and then grew. Maybe it was one asteroid that impacted Earth that had life on it, or maybe it was multiple asteroids, or a comet. Being able to examine organic matter from an asteroid would be incredible, which is why scientists are very interested in doing that. The name Hayabusa came up in my research, and I realized that's the same name as the ship from the beginning of the movie that gets destroyed by Gorath, it's also the name of the spacecraft that the Japan Aerospace Exploration Agency, or JAXA, created. It was the first time a sample was collected from an asteroid and returned to Earth. It left Earth on May 9, 2003, and returned on June 13, 2010. It was originally called MUSES C, or MUSES C, but was changed to Hayabusa. Hayabusa means Peregrine Falcon, by the way. I didn't see that Gorath was one of the reasons why that name of oh, that spacecraft was changed to Hayabusa. There was a song made by Miko Hatsune, and it's named after the Hayabusa spacecraft. It's a rather intense song, lots of animation in it. You can check that out on Yunotube. The Hayabusa spacecraft is actually depicted in the music video, and the end of the video, it says, Out of respect for JAXA meaning the space agency, so JAXA is basically NASA for Japan. The tokusatsu series Kamen Rider Forza references the spacecraft a lot as well. There is also a Lego set released of the Hayabusa spacecraft. There was a film made about it as well, starring Ken Watanabe. It's called Hayabusa The Long Voyage Home, and it was released in 2012. The Hayabusa space mission was a big deal in Japan, and there were two other movies that were made by other studios about it as well. The Hayabusa 2 spacecraft was launched in December 2014, and in June 2018, it met up with the asteroid called 162173 Ryugu, a carbonaceous asteroid. These asteroids are special compared to the Iridium asteroids because carbonaceous asteroids have potential life and ice on them, organic matter and it will come home on December 2020 with samples from that asteroid. The Hayabusa 2 ejected small rovers, which went to the surface of the asteroid and collected samples. After the landing of the sample return capsule, then scientists will determine if there's a threat to safety, and then analyze the samples. Lastly, I'm going to address the Oumuamua, or I-1 as it is known, the first interstellar object that came through our solar system that we know of. We don't know where it came from, but it went in a hyperbolic trajectory around the Sun and is going extremely fast. It can't be captured by the Sun or by Jupiter. It's small, it's long in shape, and it's tumbling through space. It's red in color, indicating that it's made of material that asteroids are made of. It may have come from Vega in the constellation of Lyra. Its maximum speed as it approached the Sun was 196,229 miles per hour. The sun sped it up a lot. It was only going 58,898 miles per hour before. It won't be for another 20,000 years until that will finally leave the solar system, but it took 600,000 years for it to get here. If it came from Vega, assuming that it came from there. It was likely ejected from another star system potentially as long as a billion years ago. It could have been blown away by an explosion or by a collision between galaxies. Jupiter could have pulled it into the solar system, but Jupiter was not able to hold on to it because it was moving so fast. Now there is an effort to try to get a spacecraft to rendezvous with Oumuamua. The very high speed of the asteroid is the biggest problem with getting this accomplished. The crux of the matter of having a spacecraft connect with an asteroid is which asteroid to pick. You want to pick something interesting in order to figure out where it came from, what its composition is. The asteroid definitely got us to notice it, even though there are other objects from outside the solar system that we haven't seen that have come through it before. It is likely that either the Sun, Jupiter, or other planets trapped these objects in the solar system. So, how does this film express the Japanese national spirit? Well, the Japanese are shown to be a willing and, in fact, dominant country in the world, and Japan's technological prowess is second to none. For economic figures of note, in 1962, the economic growth for Japan was 8.9%, as Japan was in the middle of the economic miracle post-war. I would like to dedicate this episode to Ryo Ikebe, a very fantastic actor. He was in Battle from Outer Space... He is going to be in War in Space, which will also be covered by this podcast. He was in the film Early Spring, and he did Yakuza films at Toei. He was an essayist, and he originally wanted to be a screenwriter. But he's a very good actor. He brings emotion and credibility to the characters that he plays. And he had the best moments in this movie, and I believe he's the star of the film He's a very good actor. He has a strong amount of presence that he brings, and to me, he was the highlight of this film. The next episode of this podcast will be 1963's Matango, a very special movie, one of my absolute favorites. I'd like to send a shout-out to our patron, Sean Stiff. Thank you for your support. I really appreciate it. He donated at the Kaiju Visionary level. Donating is worth it, it gives you an inside track to what's going on in the show and you get to message me personally. If you'd like to send some feedback, I'd love to hear from you. The email address is feedback at kaijuvision.com. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Kaiju Vision Radio is available on Google Play, iTunes, Stitcher, Blueberry, TuneIn, Podcast Addict, YouTube with Scenic Videos, and on KaijuVision.com. If you like the podcast, please donate on Patreon. I'm Brian Scherschel, and this is KVR Kaiju Vision Radio. See you next time.